Eight minutes it is before 8 p.m. You're tuned in to Metro FM Talk here on the Mighty Metro. And, uh, uh, yeah, this evening joining us for our business wrap is uh, market analyst Nolwandle Mtombeni. Nolwandle, good evening to you and welcome. Hi, Ivan. How are you? Good, 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 good. Nolwandle, uh, let's maybe start off here with uh, Harmony. Now, we know over the last... Uh, I guess over the last week or so, uh, we saw uh, uh, some changes to the licensing regulations for embedded generation, uh, giving effectively many uh, companies uh, right up uh, to 100 megawatts uh, uh, in what uh, they could uh, potentially generate for themselves off the grid. Uh, and uh, already, how many, gold, uh, how many gold coming out here? One of the largest, uh, if not the largest gold producer in the country saying they're ready out in uh, Valcom to uh, set up operations uh, I guess that will effectively wean them off the grid. Yes. So our miners are probably going to be the big winners with, you know, the increasing in the licensing. Mm. Um, because they are the biggest consumers of electricity. Well, I'm not going to say the biggest, but they are heavy consumers of electricity. And for many, many years, they've been, you know, trying to get, you know, regulation to make it easy for them to generate their own electricity. And on top of that, there's also lots of pressure as far as climate change. Um, for them to, you know, make use of more climate-friendly alternatives to coal. So in the process of climate change also being huge and topical, and on top of that having a lot of carbon tax imposed on them and affecting their bottom line, um, this benefits not just them as a business operation in terms of costs from the carbon tax perspective, but also in the endeavours as far as climate change, but also stability of operations, given that ESCOM has a lot of constraints. So by them being less dependent on ESCOM, they can have smooth operations. Obviously, they're not going to, you know, get all their all their um, the load off off grid. Mm. But the small changes do help. Mm, mm, mm. I, I, and and you're right. I mean, if um, if we think about it, you know, a lot of this is not just about them uh, generating electricity for some of their operations, but uh, seemingly also wanting to uh, make use of ESCOM's transmission infrastructure to wheel, uh, as people say in the industry, to wheel some of the energy to uh, the other operations in different parts of the country, not only in the free state. Yeah, I think, you know, this problem of ESCOM, it's not a problem that just affects them. It affects the entire country. And I think you really, as a corporate, need to be socially responsible about this, is that, hey, if you have the capacity to help someone else ease off the grid, which in turn benefits the entire country, then you're being a good corporate citizen. Mm. And I think this is a time for corporates to step up and realize that, okay, we have the capacity and the balance sheets are healthy. We can afford to make the capex spend on this. And, you know, if there's capacity to, you know, benefit other parts of, of the country and other communities and other projects around the region, why not? Mm. Let's talk also about, I guess, the fiscal policy incentive here. Um, this issue of uh, sort of carbon tax, which uh, for them um, leads up to a tax bill uh, just for, for that carbon tax of around 350 million rand a year. Uh, they probably would have been eyeing that as well. Yeah, definitely. I mean, you know, as I mentioned, it's one of the benefits of going off grid. Um, but the three fifty million it's it's not I mean, I can't remember how much they generate, but it's not like now they'll be super more, more profitable mm. if they can reduce that, that carbon bill. And it's not as if that number of electricity they'll be able to generate, I think it's they'll dent it by maybe four percent, so I'm not sure. I can't remember the right exact number. Um so it actually reduce their consumption of ESCOM electricity by four percent, which is mm. not that much. So 
even the 350 million it's not like a huge number in terms of the operating expenses it is it is this is a big number but i think it's just i think it's more about the other other factors that are weighing in on this mm. and also over time possibly then it's going to be bigger and they can maybe do more and then it'll be the savings will be bigger um but definitely the carbon tax is going to be a huge incentive for them to push through this immediately yeah yeah let's shift our attention to Breit and maybe you know for the benefit of uh, some of our listeners who might not be familiar with who Breit is uh, they came out today with uh, their audited financials for the financial year ending end of March 2021 Uh, seemingly a good showing and uh, yeah I guess uh, I must say a buoyant mood on the back of uh, that disposal of Iceland foods that frozen manufacturer out in the UK and a strong showing by their premier milling and baking business. Yes, so our dear Braids is a holding company um, which bought us Pepco. So the management team that, you know, was part of it was a private So Crystal Visa's people. They bought us Pepco, the likes of Pepperman, um, Pepperman, <laughs> Pep and Ackermans. Um, they were the team that, you know, made it as big as it was now mm. and ended up selling it to, you know, they sold it to... Who did they sell it to? So I can't remember. Now it's Pipco. <laughs> so, you know, the Braid team, management team were about were behind it. And then they got that money from the sales proceeds of Pipco to sign off, actually. They mm. didn't sign off. And along the way, the management team just messed this company up and they destroyed value. And the key assets in the, in, that were sitting, were left in Braids, you know, say three years ago, was Virgin Active, which we know in South Africa, but it's actually the bigger chain that actually um, extends to other countries as mm. well, especially the UK. And then Premier Foods, and Premier Foods, you'd know them as Blue Ribbon, Inyala, Iwisa. So those are the brands that, that sits within Premier Foods. And mm. those are two portfolios left. And then there's other ones that were sold, like Iceland Foods most recently, and then New Look, which was a clothing retailer, which has done disappointingly as well. Um, and what happened, just to sum it up, is that um, Ethos came in to kind of, you know, make some changes into this company, got rid of the old management team to drive value. And we're now starting to see some fruits of the different changes to the management team. Um, they sold off Iceland. And through that, they were able to, you know, um, de-gear the balance sheet. Obviously, mm. that impacted profitability. And they showed a much better profit than previously. Um, but it's still not tough. It's still very tough because Virgin Active, has lost, um, I think, around 25% down in terms of number of, of, of um, subscribers. Or, mm. Subscribers, is that you call them? A members, yeah, because I mean, members, you take members, up a membership, sorry, right? Still 25% down from pre-COVID levels. Mm. So you can imagine, and a huge part of that was the UK, and UK um, regulations and restrictions were much harsher than South Africa. In fact, they only started easing in the like in April, May, they started having some relaxation of those. Mm. And that impacted the UK part of Virgin Active quite significantly. Yeah, and I guess, I mean, Virgin Active is nearly half of the asset base of, of Braid. Yes, so, you know, we're not talking about something very marginal there in the corner, you know. Exactly. It's 48% is, is, is Virgin Active and then 46% is Premier Foods. Mm. So basically, it's a, a gym and FMCG holding company as it stands now. Yeah, um, yeah. Yeah. So let, let, let's talk briefly about uh, Premier. I mean, uh, they had uh, acquisition of uh, a much smaller sort of uh, sweet and confectionery business, Mr. Sweet. And uh, I guess some of our listeners would be familiar with that uh, entity. Uh, but they've also really, I guess, hit the lights out, uh, especially when it comes to their milling and baking business. Uh, some of which uh, didn't have the kind of exposure maybe that other FMCG players would have had. Um, 
to the fast food retail, restaurants, uh, and all of those businesses that uh, were hard hit by the lockdown. Yeah, I think the story of FMCG is 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 is, is, a, is a very dynamic and changing one because sometimes you benefit from your portfolio diversification and explosion, mm. sometimes you don't. Um, if you have too much in grains, you get hit when those grains and those prices are, are not. Yeah, yeah. But if you've got more focus than, I don't know, whatever milling, whatever other category, you could get hit. So as they've been fortunate that in this environment, they were able to show really, really good growth. I mean, talking teen revenue growth and strong EBITDA growth. So mm. really the star of the results was Premier Foods. Yeah, yeah. Um, and it makes sense, you know, stay at home, how it is, we're now in third wave. Consumption is also increasing. Mm. Inflation was low. And that benefited consumers and consumption. Yeah, yeah. Interestingly, also, I guess, you know, uh, making some capex spend, capital expenditure, uh, in line with uh, the guidance they'd given, I think around 4% of their total revenue, uh, which uh, included an investment in inland bakery um, and uh, also paying off Premier there, some of the uh, shareholder funding they got from Breit. Um, so certainly, I guess, if you think about that and the disposal of Iceland foods at a hefty premium, um, a lot of what has happened here, really, I guess, has um, one been driven by the good performance of Premier, uh, but also, I guess, uh, a rejigging of their capital structure in, in in large part. Yeah, that's completely it. Um, because I mean, you know, Virgin Active didn't perform very great. I mean, they didn't do well, but at least it was able to be offset by Premier Foods. And then, if as soon as you degear, I mean, your interest costs come down. Um, that makes a huge difference, very big difference in terms of your bottom line and the profitability. So all those elements and, you know, the management changes and some cost savings that are pushed through helps deliver a much better result. Mm-hmm. Let's shift away from uh, Breit and uh, take a look at Old Mutual. Now, I always find it interesting in this moment when I have to speak about, you know, financial services businesses. Uh, especially those that uh, are playing in the lending and maybe investment side of things, uh, and also those who also have insurance operations. If you think about, you know, the the claims profiles and uh, mortalities higher than expected for many, uh, was it the same here for Old Mutual? Yes, in fact, um, I think there's an update earlier earlier this year as well, just saying that hey, um, it's not we're not out of the woods yet. There's still mortality claims. We're still not getting this footfall into our branches to sign up more people as we did before. We still need to keep that reserve because we're seeing that there's still a need for it. So for an insurer, um, it, I mean, all the insurers had these provision reserves that they built up because obviously in case of heightened claims. And what happened is that with the second wave, we saw them claims being paid out of that reserve and those reserves being depleted because of needing to pay out those claims. Mm. But now we've got a third wave now and, you know, how things are a mess right now. So it also creates some concern that, you know, they might not only need to just tap into the remaining reserves. I think there's about 1.2 billion last I remember, but also may need to top up. That's the risk now. So, you know, those are the, you know, the, the difficulties they're faced with. And on top of that, trying to grow in an environment where you've got lots of claims, you sort of have to do more to replace the business that you're losing. Um, but in this kind of environment, um, it's very difficult. Mm-hmm. So they did announce, you know, trading updates, and it's basically, in, in a nutshell, just says that it's still a bit tough. They're not even back in 2019 levels yet, which is very hard, and they don't expect it to happen, you know, this but year. But aren't these the same guys who are paying hefty, you know, nice 
uh, fat bonuses, uh, COVID bonuses, I guess, or retention bonuses, um, according to a few reports. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I mean, surely I must ask. I mean, I mean, guys, surely, you know, they often say to us, well, all of this pay is justified by links to performance. Oh, I'm not sure. Started, I'm not sure. Boils my blood. Don't get me started. Don't get no, but let's started. talk about it. Let's, maybe for a minute or so. I mean, I'm quite interested because, you know, especially in financial services. I mean, first round, you saw the same thing. Capitec, um, you know, uh, and now Old Mutual. I mean, I think Ian Williamson at some stage sort of walked away with quite a hefty sort of a nice add-on uh, to his, uh, you know, basic, uh, I guess, um, you know, incentives uh, and basic salary structure. But I don't know. I mean, how do you explain that if you put out a set of, uh, you know, information like this in this voluntary operating update uh, and then... You know, still, I guess, ghost investors when they, you know, uh, many of them vote against your REM remuneration policy and implementation plan. Yeah. So, you know, this is something, you know, I've been very vocal about is that what basically happened is that what has been happening is the pandemic has led to what everyone will say, you know, circumstances that are beyond management control. And basically, but we still want to retain talent. We don't want people to lose out on the share options or be getting less money because of things they didn't, we need to be able to retain them. Mm. So what Remco's did globally, it's not South Africa thing. In fact, I'm pretty sure the South African execs were, you know, non-exec took guidance from the global sphere because we know that the consultants that they use are international consultants. And what's been happening is that globally, you know, people have been rejigging and meddling with the remuneration policy and adjusting the targets mm. to be able to pay the execs still more despite the fact that targets were not being met. And we took a page out of the global book, and that's what's been happening. So, you know, I mean, I cover the banking state, so we saw two weeks ago, it was just crazy. Like, three of the four banks that reported in the AGMs got shot down in terms of the REM policy or the implementation report Mm. because it was just unacceptable that they were messing with it. Um, And and we're not out of the woods yet because now we're looking at, you know, third wave, the risk is still there. But I think, I hope there's a strong signal being sent that, you know, non-execs and, and the, the board of, of num- the remuneration um, committees of boards can't just make take changes just to suit executives. Um, are they affording, you know, lower employees the same benefits of that you're going to be protected from your income because, you know, you ha- the mm. circumstances are beyond your control? Nice. It's It's just insane. I, I think we need to have uh, and dedicate some time to this conversation. I mean, I yes, think it's, uh, especially in the context of some of the amendments to Section 30 of the Companies Act, uh, which are also coming up, which are going to require more disclosures. But um, I'm not sure if, uh, yeah, disclosures are necessary, but I'm not sure if it's a sufficient condition uh, to That's align the interests of many of these executive teams and the shareholder at a primary level and uh, the broader society. I mean, in the most unequal society in the world, you put out numbers like this and still get, um, you know, uh, considerable payday. I think it's, yeah, yeah. But let's leave it for now. And talk about Jerome Powell and the Federal Reserve. Uh, yeah, I mean, I find it a very interesting institution. You know, they they sneeze and all of us, uh, you know, catch a cold or catch COVID. Yes. Indeed, you know, we're always watching what the Fed is doing. And, you know, we have some statements coming out that, they are now, you know, taking a deeper look into unemployment. And, you know, if you look at the states, before COVID happened, the unemployment level or unemployment rate was at 3.5%. Mm. And where they're at now is around, I think, 55 or 5.8. So it's 
So they're not really, you know, I mean, at the peak of COVID was sitting around 11. So they've done really well in terms of bringing that unemployment down. But, you know, it's not enough because it needs to go back to pre-COVID levels, but also inflation is just not getting to the levels they'd like. So what is happening now is that they're targeting employment. But then I think there's also, you know, I think the fact that they're talking about inequality um, is interesting. Um, indeed, if you look at the Gini coefficient of the USA, it's actually mm. the worst in terms of the developed countries. So they're sitting at about, I think, 40, 42% of the Gini coefficient. If you look at like acts of India even, mm. it's around 35 or so. And then we're like 65 being the worst. Um, and then the last of your, you know, for Germany, for example, is sitting sure. at 31. So in terms of you compare the U.S. to other developed countries, they do have a much higher Gini coefficient. We said inequality mm, is quite significant. Mm. Um, but I think there's a lot of, you know, with the change in leadership there and the new regime and, and with the Biden administration being in there, mm. these things start being the talking points that they wouldn't have been before under the previous administration. Sure, sure. I find it so interesting, Nolwandi. I mean, and I guess it, it also does speak volumes of who's uh, in the West Wing of the White House. Um, mm. I find it quite interesting that uh, Jerome Powell, who's sort of the head of the uh, Federal Reserve, uh, and he's a registered Republican. Uh, who can take a position which says, you know what, um, we might see some inflation coming up as I guess you know pent up demand starts to constrain supplies in the economy, uh, but effectively that doesn't mean that we're in a tight environment, um, and so we'll continue to give stimulus to the economy. We'll continue to inject liquidity into the marketplace, uh, but even go further and talk about you know um, employment targeting, and employment targeting of certain groups. So looking at the impact for certain demographic groups in the U.S. of different or the use of different monetary policy instruments. I mean, I find that, yeah, I mean, I don't know. It's a bit of a sort of mind freeze for me. Yeah, I think I think he's talking the talk. But in terms of the actual the policy tools that are available, mm. um, are they to, to, to benefit the entire country as a whole? And they're very macro-based. Once we look at different societal groups it becomes very micro so I'm not sure that there is a policy mm. instrument that can cater to things like different um, you know racial society, racial groups there yeah yeah I, I, I found that quite interesting I mean exactly. that would go that far really but yeah, isn't, yeah. there mm. isn't a tool for that he's just saying that just to make everyone feel warm and fuzzy um, but it's not it's not it's not a policy it's not an economic instrument it's not mm. it's not in there there's no framework for it but I guess no longer you would have um in any employment targeting framework, the use of the instruments, the macro instruments, so the interest rate, the balance sheet of the bank, uh, banking policy and all of that, to influence lending or productive lending to the real economy, right? So, so you would have instances where, you know, the use of your instruments aren't only just about uh, improving asset prices in the economy, but effectively getting money to the factories and to the other areas where employment is created. But it also affects the rich. The minute that you're not hiking rates, dropping rates, who's going to benefit? Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, no, I'm, I'm saying that. I mean, I guess the rich, the moment you drop the rates, exactly. there's so much so, money floating around and so much liquidity. But I guess the question is, does any of that liquidity get to the people who whose decisions actually influence employment outcomes? So, and I think if you look in terms of where the the progress of the rec- and the recovery in the in the 
the American economy, it really has to do with the fiscal side and the monetary side. Mm. Um, I think the stimulus packages are the ones that end up reaching those groups. It, is not a, it was never the monetary policy. It was the fiscal. So sure, really, this is something sure. that the fiscal should be doing. Mm. And because there's monetary, there's, there's nothing they can do. I mean, Eesh. whatever they do will benefit everyone from the elitist, wealthy, to the man in the streets, if at all. Um, but it's really the fiscal side now that pushes in that stimulus that leeches the mm, bottom level. Yeah. Um, so I'm not convinced that you know they can really do anything to improve inequality. But I think it's maybe a sign that you know it's something that they need to consider. Mm. But I'm yet to see a framework, sure. in monetary policy that targets inequality. Nolwandle, you are in the Twane CBD at the South African Reserve Bank, um, mulling over in the MPC uh, the next rates decision. What do you then make of Jerome Powell's latest statements, Um, I guess about the pace, scale, and longevity of this massive injection of liquidity into the global market? I think I, you know, I really think what's the end target. And for them, it's really, you know, inflation. Ultimately, that's the, the main you know, for monetary policy, it really is about inflation mm. targeting. And really, he's already seen that, you know, the expectations are for 2023 for any sort of rate hikes. So that's a long time between now and 2023. So they've got time to continue to put in that monetary stimulus until they get that inflation. They don't expect inflation to pick up because also unemployment is not where they'd want it to be. Mm. They want it to go down further. So what I would be looking at is that what is their target, which is, you know, low infl- input unemployment, maybe 3.5% from the 5.5 or 5.8 we are now. Um, the, you know, the, the, the frameworks are saying that there'll only be hikes in 2023. Mm. Gives me a lot of time. It's a lot of time. That's like two and a half years. Wait, wait, my math is wrong. One and a half? Two and a half. Yeah, two and a half years. So, one and a half. I don't know. Yeah, one and a half years. So, that's a long time to be putting stimulus in the market so they can do that. Yeah. Um, South Africa... We're not targeting the same things. <laughs> we, we, we've scared. got much bigger structural problems. Yeah, I'm say, scared. Oh, I'm, yeah. I'm scared of a stagflation situation here you know, that might so, develop. I mean, where you've got stagnant growth, high unemployment, um, and potentially you know, high inflation. If we continue to deal with some of the supply side constraints in the economy and uh, some of what happens out uh, in uh, you know the uh, marketplace, or even what happens to the rand, for that instance. But Nolwandle, uh, we'll uh, have to, I guess, uh, play it by ear and uh, take a look over the next few days or so what um, the Monetary Policy Committee might say about interest rates. But we'll have to leave it here this evening. Thank you very much for your time. My pleasure. That there was uh, market analyst Nolwandle Mtombeni helping us with our wrap of the top business stories. Sixteen minutes it is after eight p.m. and uh, we uh, move swiftly along uh, to our tech conversations. And this evening we've got an interesting story, I guess, uh, where public procurement and uh, localization and industrialization.